This is Omo. 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 Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Omo, the romance and reality of all things violin. I'm Jerry Lynn coming to you today from Williamsport, Pennsylvania. I'm joined by my co-host for this episode, Jason Peoples. Hi. How are you, Jason? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm hanging in there. You know, this, the spring for me tends to be my busiest time of year. I don't know about you. Oh, absolutely. This is Black Friday stretched out for, you know, three months. (laughs) I get it. I totally get it. Anyhow, we wanted to start covering more on wood. The episodes we did on Pernambuco kind of whetted our appetite for what else is going on. And we figured the best way to start talking about wood, particularly alternate species or alternate materials, uh, it's important to start developing a better understanding of what exactly tone wood is. Our guest today, Shannon Rogers, he's not a luthier, but he talks about wood in a way that is perhaps, uh, well, perhaps takes away a whole lot less of uh, the mysticism that we might give to it. Yeah. And he's a really interesting guy. Oh, totally interesting. So stay tuned. After the break, we'll be back with Shannon Rogers. Homo sapiens. I have with me here today, Jackson Maberry, maker of JG Rosinet oil varnish. Jackson. Tell us about John Geddes Macintosh. Dr. Macintosh was a professor of varnish chemistry in London at the height of the Second Industrial Revolution when technology still sort of bore the marks of trade. Mm. Now, of course, technology is thoroughly scientific, but, you know, trade, of course, being important to us, uh, it was important to him, too. He wrote a great deal on oils, resins, solvents, and varnish making, Uh, And it's this three-volume magnum opus that cracked the code of Rosinitz for me. So I named the line of products after him, just sort of out of respect and gratitude. Wonderful. Get your J.G. McIntosh Rosinitz oil varnish and other varnishing supplies today by visiting woodfinishingenterprises.com. Search McIntosh. Special thanks to Learning Trade Secrets for supporting this episode of OMO. Does your violin shop have a solid Bowery Hair Technician. It's time to get one by sending your aspiring apprentice or yourself to the Summer Rehairing Workshop at LTS this August 6th through 11th. Award-winning bowmaker Rodney Moore will guide you through this class where you'll learn all the rehair essentials from tip to frog. Also, spend a week with the delightful Sofia Vittori learning authentic Italian varnish of the Vittori family this August 13th through 18th. Build a beautiful varnish on that completed violin or viola of yours from the ground up. You can register for these courses and more by visiting learningtradesecrets.com. Hey, welcome back. We have a real treat today. Unlike our usual guests from the violin trade, i.e. near-do-wells, juvenile delinquents, and other miscreants, Today's guest has actual class. Shannon Rogers produces the podcast Shannon's Lumber Industry Update, 
He runs the Hand Tool School, an online school for hand tool woodworking, and has degrees in vocal performance and physics. He's also the director of marketing for J. Gibson McIlvain, one of the oldest lumber companies in the country. Shannon, welcome to OMO. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, let me add the fact that I'm also a vocalist. So let the war between the vocalists and the instrumentalists ensue. <laughs> so I got to ask, oh, were you a scarf wearer and did you practice outside of the practice rooms? <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. You, you've like seen inside my soul. So I used to live with two vocalists. When I was in music oh, nice. school, we, our, our apartment was just littered full of opera scores. I feel like I have this whole other degree and I know a a very different side of weird because I lived with vocalists. So y yeah, you're in good yeah, company. Lots of vitamin C and echinacea <laughs> yeah. floating around. Yes, and yes, absolutely. yes. And have to protect the instrument. I am proud to say that I was not a scarf wearer and that I actively made fun of the <laughs> scarf wearers. But uh, yeah, the, the, the practice rooms... Yeah, I had a lot of time in practice rooms. If only they made them bigger. Like I think the amount of time I spent in a six by six space was uh, it was startling. <laughs> Before we get into the meat of what we wanted to talk about, uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about uh, your podcast, the Lumber Industry Update, the Hand Tool School, and uh, your your day gig? Sure, sure. Well, um, the Lumber Industry Update actually um, started as a segment because um, I do another podcast called Wood Talk. Uh, that one's been around 12 years or so, something like that. And it's it's three woodworkers just talking woodworking. And when I started working um, in the lumber industry about 15 years ago, uh, my co-host said, well, hey, why don't we do like a little segment and you can talk about like what's new in the lumber industry. So one of my co-hosts as a joke um, like went on Fiverr and commissioned this guy to do this like barbershop type <laughs> intro type thing of Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. And um, it people loved it. So next thing I knew, it was a spinoff. It turned into its own show. So I am approaching 100th episode of that one. And as the name says, I, I try to focus on, you know, what's going on the lumber biz because <clears throat> I've been I've been woodworking for, I don't know, a while, <laughs> several decades at this point. And I remember when I started working um, in the lumber industry, it was shocking like to look behind the curtain. I think you could say this with most things. Once you get a chance to look behind the curtain of big business, sure, you, you start to go, wow, I had no idea this was going on. And the lumber industry as a whole tends to keep their cards very close to their vest and has for hundreds of years. Um, lots of industries have terminology, but the lumber industry seems to insist on using the terminology irrespective of whether or not their customers understand it. And, you know, this is how we get terms like board footage, you know, and don't even get started on grading. I mean, it's ridiculous. So I, I just said, look, let's try to peek behind the curtain. Let's show what's going on. And um, people loved it. And I, I kind of have these seasons, if you will, where I go down a rabbit hole. Lately, I've been talking a lot about urban logging yeah. and trying to, to understand this grassroots industry that I think is going to completely revolutionize how lumber is sourced and frankly, maybe put the large businesses out of business or at least stick them in a corner uh, that they're not used to be stuck in. So yeah, that's the lumber industry update. Um, got a lot of sawmill guests on. Um, I've had silviculturalists on. I've had... Um, uh, other woodworkers on, um, as I told you guys offline, I just had a pilot on to talk about wood and aviation because I 
recently visited uh, Kitty Hawk and saw the Wright Brothers Memorial and was just totally wow. taken by the spruce. Yeah. We're talking soundboard yeah. material here, <laughs> but the spruce that was used um, to make the first, you know, human-powered flight. So, yeah, that's that's the lumber industry update. Um, the Hand Tool School is, as you guys said, it's, it's my online woodworking school. I started it back in 2010. And it was um, kind of an outgrowth of, of um, another website I run called The Renaissance Woodworker that I started as a blog back when blogs were things. Back in 2008 or so, I wanted to kind of chronicle what I was building in my shop. And I called it The Renaissance Woodworker because I just couldn't decide. Was I going to build chairs? Was I going to build cabinets? You know, maybe I'm going to build a box here. So I, I, you know, went with the whole Renaissance man idea and I think most people still don't get that, but you know, they wonder why are you making contemporary furniture if you're the Renaissance woodworker? <laughs> My answer is usually, have you seen Renaissance furniture? It's really ugly. So I don't want to build that. But the the Renaissance woodworker, I started doing videos back when like nobody was doing it. There was one other guy who was doing it. Coincidentally, is one of my co-hosts on the Wood Talk podcast. And I that kind of turned into this need where there really wasn't anybody talking about hand tool methods, using hand saws, using hand planes, using the same tools that have been in use for centuries, actually millennia at this point. Egyptians use the same tools. Yeah. Romans, they found hand planes in Pompeii, you know? And um, the other thing I was discovering just personally, if I wanted to take a class, it first of all costs like $1,500 to go take like a three or four day class at a woodworking school. Sure. Then you had to travel there. Then you had to find room and board. Then you had to take time off of work to mm -hmm. do it. And I'm thinking, man, this is, this is like a $3,000 thing. That and the fact that like if you have a spouse or kids, like try convincing your wife to go to, you know, Pittsburgh, North Carolina and hang out for a week while you're in class all week long, you know? So then there's, there's marital tension that comes <laughs> out of that. So I was like, you know what? There's got to be a better way. And there's all this stuff. I mean, this is honestly, this is before YouTube. Like YouTube is what, 11 years old now? Yeah, it's 11 so or 12. This, maybe. this predated it. I mean, it came along shortly after that, but I had this this library of videos online using things like Ustream and blip.tv and stuff. And I was like, let's give this a shot. And basically, it's a membership site. You know, now that's like we're in a membership economy. Everybody's got Netflix and everybody's got some sort of subscription or a Patreon sponsorship or something like that. And here we are 12 years later. I've got students on. I'd like to claim every continent. I'm trying to get somebody at McMurdo Station to do some woodworking with hand tools in Antarctica. But so <laughs> far, uh, the other six continents, um, thousands of people that that have learned how to build using one fifteenth horsepower, um, the average human <laughs> anyway. And uh, I, I contend <laughs> that it will make you a better woodworker. I'm not anti-power tools by any means. I don't have any anymore. Uh, I've gotten rid of them over the years. I started using power tools. And I have a lot of students that use power tools. But power tools limit us in ways that that a chisel never will limit you you know the chisel is the original woodworking tool it's a wedge a sharpened wedge and everything else tries to emulate it just like everything else tries to emulate the human voice sorry i had to throw that human voice salvo at you <laughs> no worries no worries we're 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 fans of all kinds here even vocalists <laughs> so the day gig how did you go from music major <laughs> yeah well um I mean, for me, music major to luthier is a pretty, not a very long distance, but for you. Yeah, 
that that uh, that that works. Um, yeah, and interestingly, I know a lot of physicists who are also music majors as well. So that one wasn't terribly mm-hmm. a stretch either. For me, it was straight out of school, landing a few jobs. Uh, I landed a few conducting jobs. I was a rehearsal conductor for um, a light opera company for a while. Um, did a few um, you know gigs as 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 a vocalist. Um, did couple of off 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 i don't know what we call it in the opera world off 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 broadway um off 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 metropolitan um did did some art song type stuff uh did a lot of solo soloist gigs with um uh orchestral choirs and to be perfectly honest well let's be really honest i wasn't good enough to like make it you know um i've got friends i've got colleagues that that are at the met there are principals at the met they they made it but I also just started to become disenchanted a bit mm-hmm. with music as an occupation. And this is an old story. Um, mm-hmm. You know, standing, uh, I remember there was an audition for Don Giovanni and uh, I really was trying to go out for Leporello and there were yes. four other people in the room that were obviously auditioning for Leporello and everybody's like sitting in the room, like sizing each other up, <laughs> like trying to be friendly. And then like, you're trying to have small talk about well, I mean, Hey, what have you been working on lately? And it's basically just a big resume booster all the time. Mm-hmm. Like everything I've yeah. done is a resume yeah. booster. And I was just like, man, like what happened to like, I just like to sing, you know, I love Mozart yeah. and I'm really excited to play Leporello because hell, this is one of like for the bass baritones of the world, you know, you. this is it. Um, so maybe magic flute, you can do that cool line or, or, you know, but that, that there's, that was kind of a, a, a watershed moment for me. And, um, you know, I, I continued with it for a while. My wife is actually a music teacher. She's a, a voice teacher. Um, and I kind of continue to consult if you will, and, and do some work along that line. But I, I ended up just saying, you know what, let's get a job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I landed in a job in a totally different field. Um, eventually that led me to marketing. Um, this was all kind of in um, kind of the same time as I was doing the woodworking thing and kind of building a social media presence and building a following, building a community is what we would say. Um, mm-hmm. That actually allowed me to transition out of kind of an IT-based company into a marketing job, specifically digital marketing with an agency, because I had demonstrated the ability to build communities and agencies want that. So I worked actually within a marketing, a digital marketing agency for about two years and um, got this phone call one day from a headhunter who said, I need somebody that understands search engine optimization, understands social media and would. <laughs> and I, I actually laughed out loud. I was like, dude, I feel for you. Like that is the most obscure job requirement as a recruiter you will ever run into. <laughs> That's like the purple squirreled one-eyed cat type requirement. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, uh, that's me, like interestingly enough. And he started talking to me about this company called Jacobs and McIlvain, and I was just enchanted. It's a family-run business. We're seventh generation at this point. Started um, officially incorporated in 1798. Um, technically, the company wow. started in 1740, but it's a little difficult to incorporate when you've got that whole colony and then Revolutionary <laughs> War thing and no constitution until the 1780s. You know, I think that's right, 1780 something. I don't remember when Constitution Day is, but it was it was after the the, the Revolutionary War. So 1798, they incorporated, and it was just fascinating to me that we could trace the lineage of this guy that I'm sitting here interviewing with, John Gibson McIlvain. And 
<laughs> his great, 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 great grandfather, I might be missing one there, like started this company and housed George Washington when he was in Valley Forge because they lived just outside of Philadelphia. And the history was just fascinating to me. And, and, and history, frankly, is one of the reasons that I got into hand tools in the first place. I was just absolutely taken by how people built things, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And it was the same kind of story. And yeah, it just kind of fit. And, you know, I've told a lot of people, uh, digital marketing is a super hot skill set, And it's one of those things where I get calls all the time, you know, oh, you can come here and you could double or triple your salary here. And it, it's just not about that anymore. It's like, I found my home and it was the perfect Venn diagram, you know, the the wood, the love of wood, the love of history, the ability to do the marketing work that I wanted to do. They were perfectly cool with me managing this other business on the side. In fact, it it kind of bolsters my um, Google mm -hmm. authority, if you will, um, to have that kind of same niche going on. Um, the Lumber Industry Podcast is not affiliated with Jay Gibson McIlvain at all, but it is a street cred. You know, I, I know what I'm talking about because I've been running marketing for this big company for a while. So yeah, that was a, it's a long story, I know. But um, yeah, ultimately, that was a good one, though. I keep my fingers in music. I, I perform when I can. Every now and then I go out and do some community theater work. Sometimes I do soloist work. Every year Christmas time runs around or Easter, I'm there doing the Messiah, you know. <laughs> Um, it's just, it, and, and I've never been happier when it comes to music in that respect to, to just pursue it for fun more than anything else. That's fantastic. Uh, so the reason why you're here talking to a bunch of, of violin nerds is, uh, one of us came across episode 61 on tone woods and it got passed around <laughs> and we're like, wow, this is great because, we all have different relationships with what we call tone wood. Mm. Some people choose tone wood by, by various means from everything from wrapping on it to candle magic to science, which may or may not be good. Uh, the, the trade as a whole, we've been kind of, I don't say, well, we're, we're, we're facing some, some pretty big cliffs here as far as uh, you know, as you know, problems with, with Pernambuco, mm -hmm. uh, Ebony is a big concern for us. And Jason and I were talking that there's not a whole lot of, I'll say, common language out there. Right. You know, Tonewood is what we experience it as, but we don't necessarily have, I'll say as a whole, a, a good definition of what is Tonewood. Right. So what is Tonewood? Uh, the most scientific answer to that is it's the perfect meeting of low density, high hardness, and stiffness. So, um, okay. you know, wood hardness is measured with something called the Janka test. You take a 0.5, basically a half inch steel ball and press it a half an inch into the wood. And the amount of pounds per square inch that that's required, that is your resulting Janka number. Um, density, of course, you know, that's the same everywhere. How much, how much mass does the thing have? And then stiffness or uh, modulus of elasticity or Young's modulus, depending on what, you know, field you're in, is basically press on the board and what kind of force is required to deflect it a certain amount. I don't remember the exact amount to make the test, but a certain amount, we'll just say X amount. And then what kind of force is exerted as it snaps back. So taking those 
three things. And there's there's gradations, and I suppose you could say there's there's a few other things you might consider in there, but ultimately that's it. Like if you were to plot those things, um, the easy thing to do is plot density uh, versus stiffness. The hardness is, especially when we're talking about violins, the hardness is not as big of a deal because we're not striking it. Um, you know, like like a, a xylophone, um, mm-hmm. where you you need to have a certain amount of hardness to to withstand the striking, but also to create the um, the attack, the timbre, you know, of that actual sound of striking. So, really, from a, a soundboard perspective, it's density and stiffness, and um, density certainly affects the speed of sound um, as it runs through. Well, technically, the speed of sound is a constant, right? But the, as the that wave, the speed of the wave as it travels through that material, can be hindered or possibly expedited based upon its density. And the stiffness allows that. See, if if it starts to, as the wave passes through there, it excites the molecules around it, and the molecules start bouncing into one another. This is how sound is formed, right? This is how heat is formed. Yeah. Um, so as that wave passes through and it excites the materials, you're going to essentially get movement or, or flex in that. And if you have a high amount of stiffness, it's going to, um, certainly resist in some respect, but it's also going to try to kind of maintain its shape. But, um, a higher amount of stiffness means that it's also going to react a bit more predictably and it's going to vibrate. It's going to ring. Um, and, you can actually tap into the inner, you know, frequency of that material, um, and really get amplification, which is ultimately what a, you know, that's what a soundboard is, right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we're just, just take those strings, stretch them over a bridge and don't put anything underneath it. And you're not going to get a whole lot of sound out of a violin or a guitar or, you know, any stringed instrument. It's the perfect viola though. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> Jason and I find that more funny than you probably do. We're going to apologize to the violists in this room. No, we never apologize to violists. No, all right, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Um, so yeah, that's that's the simplest definition: density, stiffness, and hardness to some extent is is really how you can, you can map that. And the difficulty and the mystery and the mystique comes from the fact that we're talking about an organic material. Yeah, like if we were using engineered materials that we could, um, we we could look at under an electron microscope and we could see exactly how everything was structured, or an alloy where you're talking about a crystalline lattice, you could really like sample it. Frankly, to use electronic terms, and that's you know it it could be really easy to reproduce that, but you'll look at a piece of spruce, a piece of genuine mahogany, and look at like one inch of it you know, one square inch and you'll get a structure and then you move one square inch to the right or to the left and you're going to have a different structure. Um, but I say that that's the cool part. Like mm-hmm. that's the exciting part. That's yeah. what makes music music, frankly. Um, and, and you know, I, Hey, I, I went through music appreciation and I've heard the Edgar Vares tapes and I've listened to, you know, uh, Elliot Carter's canaries to learn about rhythmic modulation and all that fun stuff. And, Hell, I did a senior recital on Charles Ives. Like I love <laughs> Charles Ives. Um, so 
you know, I, I can get into to modern music and I can get into the more recent iterations of electronic music. And frankly, electronic violins are just cool looking. Um, very, they look like they're right out of Tron or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, for but sure. But they're not, they're not pretty. They're just cool looking. Um, but man, when you stack that up against, you know, a well-made wooden instrument, I don't care whether it's a oh, xylophone sure. or, you know, a guitar, a violin or a piano, that depth of tone, that, that, um, luster that you get and the ver variety of timbres that you can get by, you know, stroking harder and sorry, I'm not a violinist, but like pushing harder on the bow, okay. striking the piano key harder. Um, it's just crazy blowing harder through that reed on the oboe. It's mm -hmm. amazing what can happen and, and the dynamic control that we have. Um, that's, that's what makes it mysterious and makes it incredibly frustrating. Um, so <laughs> Yeah, long-winded answer. Oh, I sure. Know, but... Well, a lot of the, the 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 best makers I know are they're often what I would refer to as really good cooks. Hmm. They the ingredients that they have they're never quite the same, but they they know what to do with yeah. it. They can read the materials. It's a little bit like playing jazz. Hmm. That's a good analogy. And yeah, yeah. At least in my own experience, that's a lot a lot what it's like. Uh, so I, I totally. I totally get that organic, that organic thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I think the, the, the mixture, the recipe, that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah. Uh, I, I had a conversation like before I recorded that, uh, Tonewoods episode, um, I talked to, uh, mostly guitar makers cause I, I sell to guitar mm -hmm. makers daily. So I had some contacts there and I talked to one guy who had been doing it for 40 years, um, for the same company. And, like he could close his eyes and tell you the species of the soundboard. And it wasn't like, well, that's mahogany and that's ash. No, it was like, that's mountain ash and that's swamp ash. And I'm like, you're <laughs> wow. full of it. Like, and he's like, no, I'm totally serious. Do you hear that little twang? And he's talking overtones and things like that. I mean, you just, you, you, you understand it the more you play around with it. And, and yeah. he could tell you that was swamp ash. Well, he was talking solid body guitars in that instance, but like, he could tell you with acoustics by listening what the fretboard mm -hmm. was made out of, what mm -hmm. the soundboard was made out of. What, you know, it was just nuts. And and the combinations that again is that that you know organic nature of the sound. Throw a different bridge material in there, and you've got a a different sound. Um, yeah, hell, uh, there's a guy in Texas A and M that just uh, released some uh, mass spectroscopy mass spectroscopy results of Stradivarius's violins. And they determined that the sound wasn't so, I mean, the spruce helps um, and the maker helped, but the, um, the chemical treatments they put because of a bug outbreak at the time in that alpine oh. forest, the borax <laughs> and the alum and some of the copper compounds that they bought at the drugstore to, to kill the bugs because it was a massive deal at the time that's what the American Chemical Society is, is coming back. Like when they do the spectroscopy analysis, and I don't know, I'm assuming they didn't, please tell me they didn't destroy a Stradivarius. Somehow they, they got something, you know, a, a sample from it and have conclusively shown that that's what creates the sound. It was the actual bug treatment or anti-bug treatment. Well, yes, please see please every, prove me wrong. <laughs> oh, so so every 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 decade or or less now, I think we're at a, a less cycle. Everybody's got an idea 
about what makes Criminy's violins mm-hmm. great. Yeah. And uh, before it was the bug treatment, it was floating the logs in the sewer. Um, before that, it was a fungus. Before that, it was uh, a mini ice age. Uh, there's all these before that yeah. that that happened. Varnish and, got thrown in there at one point too. Somebody. Oh, varnish, varnish is always varnish is always in there. Um, you know, so when you look at at great Cremonese instruments, the thing I think that you see across several different makers is you see this this trend where people had a chance to develop great intuition and uh, develop a great amount of skill. And uh, this synergy of of making these things. And, you know, there's also a heavy dose of of romance that's come into play since these instruments were made, even in the time of, of, uh, gosh, I think there's a letter uh, written by, by, I think it was Monteverdi, somebody looking to, to find a violin and he says, oh, you need to get one of those old Cremonas, even though Monteverdi was, you know, it was, it was contemporary of the time period. He was still talking about an older, more romantic instrument. <laughs> Sorry, I just have to laugh. So, one of my other co-hosts on Wood Talk, his last name is Cremona and he's the youngest of the bunch. So when oh. you say get an old Cremona, it just makes me laugh. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'd have to say that, man, I'm, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. <laughs> um <laughs> Right, right now we are in every bit as much of a second golden age of instrument making hmm. as there ever was, and that has a lot more to do with, I'll say, the skill that's been cultivated in people, hmm. more so than any specific thing. Uh, because another decade, there'll be another theory about what gives those instruments that sound, and I'm really going to get into trouble and tell you that a lot of them don't sound very good. <laughs> I was actually going to ask that, and I was I was a little little hesitant yeah. to say that because not being a violinist, like, are they that good? Like, do people even play them anymore, or are they just too valuable to play? Oh, yeah. oh okay. sure. Well, no, that's nice no. to hear at least. No, they're, they're they're played, and there are some that sound truly amazing, mm-hmm. uh, but there's also some that that don't. Hmm. Likewise, there's some uh, some new instruments that sound absolutely positively amazing. Hmm that rival an old Cremonese violin. So really what I tell people uh, is if you've, if you've got the, if you've got the budget, basically it gives you a whole lot of options. If you don't have the budget, I tell people to go for modern instruments and that's coming from me. My, my bread and butter is as a restorer. I work on old, sometimes famous violins and, uh, you know, it's for me, the romance kind of died a while ago. <laughs> Speaking of peeking behind you the know, curtain, <laughs> peeking behind the curtain, yeah. you, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's no longer the honeymoon. It's a, it's a cold night, you know, in December. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to get letters for, you know, from, from dealers saying things, I'm right. sure. But, um, yeah, they, everybody's got ideas about, what makes Stradivari violins great. And some are absolutely 100% amazing. Some aren't. It's just the way it is. Yeah. We we have an expression amongst woodworkers that's it's the poor workman who blames his tools. And I have to feel some of that exists, well, in everything. But um, 
you know, I have heard some amazing violinists in, in just my yeah. orchestral um, past. And you could hand them, you know, a cereal box with oh, other yeah. bands. And, and they're going to make it work. work. And, you know, yeah. I also question, like, is the average ear refined enough to tell the difference? Um, and, and maybe, maybe they they know there's a difference, but they're still enjoying what they're hearing. And, and I know that that's sure. not like, let's strive for excellence, but at the same time, man, like it is that control over dynamic expression and, and rubato and, and just, just artistic expression oh, yeah. that makes yeah. music alive, that makes it hit yeah. you right in the chest and you tear up yeah. in the concert hall. It is you know, yeah. I, I would venture to say it has very little to do with the quality of that soundboard, you know? Um, so uh, I, I personally, I don't know that I could tell the difference. If somebody pulled out a, you know, a, a you know, a, a masterwork violin and then grabbed maybe not, you know, your elementary school special, um, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. you know, a professional instrument. Yeah. you know, played by yeah. a first chair, you know, by a concert master in any decent philharmonic orchestra, I don't think is going to make a bit of difference. Well, I always, I always think of it like a, a palette, you know, you got a great artist and you give them a set of paints so they can make something amazing and they mm -hmm. may use the limitations of that palette to do something unique. Uh, the more options they have, the more they can do. Uh, they can use some richer, better colors, but uh, they, they can make something pretty great with crayons too. Uh, yeah. So the right amount of titanium white makes those trees happy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, taking, <laughs> taking the, uh, the human inner part of that and, the the intuition and, and artistry and going back to your example about, uh, cooking, uh, hmm. you might have a chef that makes a recipe and, and, uh, they've always known to use a certain set of ingredients, but if those aren't available anymore or they're in a different region of the world, they're going to look for something similar. And the better chef yeah. they are, they're going to know what's, what this other ingredient can do that's similar, but it, it's a little different, so i got to treat it different. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, wood can be that way. Uh, and yeah. I was listening to your, uh, your podcast, I think number 68, Interpreting Woodworking Properties. And mm -hmm. great explanation of like, if you've never worked with a, a species of wood before, you can look at these numbers and get an idea to compare it to something you have worked before. And as we're kind of looking at other alternatives to wood, um, what are your thoughts on uh, kind of going down that road to experiment with other things without having to try every species out there? Yes. Um, this, this principle is really at the heart of everything I teach. Um, when I, when I start talking about wood, you know, during COVID, I think I, talk to about 35 different woodworking guilds around the country via zoom. Um, and this was what they wanted me to talk about, like the, all the mysteries of wood. And what I'm trying to explain to people is there are a lot of, there's a lot of technical data out there from the U S forest products laboratory to various international bodies that test these woods. And that's where we get these Janka hardness numbers and these, you know, uh, MOR and MOE, modulus of rupture, bending strength, elasticity for stiffness, um, compression strength, all those things. And it's, it's a lot of numbers. And mm -hmm. the great part is the numbers don't have to mean a thing. 
All you have to know is that nine is more than eight, essentially. Um, <laughs> and you can look at, and there's great resources on the internet from thewooddatabase.com to, um, well, basically start by Googling a species and you're going to find all kinds of lists of them. So you can look at, I have worked a lot with spruce and, and it's actually really interesting. Um, you have to dig a little bit deeper, but if you look at the various varieties of spruce, um, and start to look at the density numbers and the MOR numbers and MOE numbers and the Janka numbers, you can say, okay, I know how that works. I know how that sounds. I know how to, I know how to pick a soundboard in that particular species. So it's just as easy as kind of writing those numbers down and then go out and look for a species that's going to have similar numbers, but more importantly, similar ratio mm. of numbers. So when we talk about density versus stiffness versus hardness, what is the ratio of that? You know, well, my density is one to four versus um, um, versus uh, hardness or something like that. Mm -hmm. Understanding how those uh, those interact with one another, then going and looking for a species that's going to exhibit a similar property. And that's actually going to get you pretty close um, so that you're not having to try 17 different woods, but you probably can get down to three or four. Yeah. The other thing is, is look at your taxonomy. Mm. Um, you know, kingdom, phylum, what is it? Order, family, genus, species? I don't I never remember it. Um, <laughs> Genus and species, that's the one we're really focused on. Maybe family, maybe. Mm. Um, but like we we look at um, spruce. What is that? Uh, Picea genus? Picea, yeah. Sure. Um, look at the other things in the Picea genus. And you're going to find a lot of similarities there. Now, you're going to find some outliers, certainly. Um, moreover, when you can make a leap from one genus to another, and say there's some similarities here. The Picea genus has some similarities with the Sweetina genus, your mahoganies, um, your true mahoganies, um, not your Melissiae family. Further down into the Sweetina genus, you'll find a lot of similarities in those properties. And these things get lumped together taxonomically speaking for a reason. Um, you know, Mother Nature has a grand design. So that's a, a I like to think of that as kind of a high level way let's mm. see what other things exist in the genus then we'll start looking at those technical properties as well and you will be really surprised how much you will learn about a wood without ever tapping it picking it up taking a chisel to it just based on on those numbers mm -hmm. um and, and you can get really really detailed at this point because things like um mor and moe numbers are, are large cumbersome numbers usually 1.7 million you know, <laughs> foot pounds and, and 875,000, you know, they're, they're very, very large numbers. The other thing you have to pay attention to is the units. Um, if you're talking about um, what we in North America would call an exotic species, they're going to use slightly different units, obviously. Mm. Um, you know, they, they, and a lot of times they focus much more on, on uh, Newtons um, than foot pounds and things like that. So you, you might have to do sure. a little bit of conversion, but thank goodness for Google. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember how to do that somewhere back in school, but I don't need to do that anymore. I can ask my Apple Watch to do that for me. So, you know, make sure you've got your units right and and look for things with similar numbers. Um, and, and this applies to, you know, building a piece of furniture and building an instrument. Obviously, from an instrument, you've got a lot more acoustical things to consider. Um, 
So I, I really encourage people to um, look, and we also, like you said, we're in this second golden age. There's a lot of people trying a lot of different things. And we've seen the writing on the wall for a while um, that you know we've got to branch out. We've got to find that next great tone wood. Um, and people have made experimentations in it. And have they been successful? Well, what does that mean? Like, did they sell mm. a bunch of instruments? Are there a lot of people with big names who are influential playing those instruments? Maybe not, but you know what? That might've been a really big success. They mm -hmm. just only sold two of them. Um, mm -hmm. And therefore everybody, mm -hmm. nobody really considered it. So I'd be willing to bet that there's a lot of makers out there who have already tapped into, huh, pun intended, uh, a good <laughs> tone wood. Um, and you might be surprised, you know, and, and, podcasts like this and, and various trade organizations is really where that those secrets kind of can come to light and we can start to experiment it, with it a lot more. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think it's easy to drown in numbers, but I, I think yeah. just like you're saying, the idea of using that as a comparison, using that as a starting point, and then all the, all the things that you're used to doing and touching and tapping and twisting, it kind of gives you a reference point and, uh, yeah. A, a way to think about it more detailed um, and maybe uh, hone in on an aspect that you already are doing, but you're combining it with three things and uh, it lets you be a little more precise in, in even your hand methods. Right. And another aspect to think about, and this is especially imperative when we start talking about exotic species, um, for one, certainly rainforest woods are always going to be something we need to be concerned about. But from a forest concession management um See, this is, this is, I'll, I'll get letters. <laughs> you can send letters to me on this one. But for the most part, um, this is one of those things where there's just a couple of bad eggs that give a bad name to the entire industry. Mm. Um, concession management um, in the hot areas, you know, the South American rainforest, specifically the Amazon rainforest, but also a lot of areas of Africa, um, it's really well managed. Mm -hmm. The problem is, it's a really big forest and it's really <laughs> dense and you can sneak a wood miser in there um, and you can do some, some illicit things. Um, and fortunately the tech has gotten to the point with, you know, just things like drones where you can spot these things um, and they're starting to catch these folks um, and, and, and shut it down. But obviously the more um, restrictive uh, a market becomes, the more reason for somebody to have a black market um, that's always going to exist out there. My point, however, is these concessions are uncovering a lot of secondary and tertiary woods mm -hmm. that don't really have a market that exists for them. But in order to run a proper concession, in order to follow proper silvicultural methods of, of whether you're talking shelter wood or, or, or you know, clear cutting to some extent, whatever's going to be healthiest for that forest and what is actually part of that concession plan over that 40 year span that that concession plan is set up for, those other trees, those tertiary trees, they do need to be felled in some mm -hmm. extent. Um, or you end up with monocultures or you end up with, with issues where, you know, the primary species is taken out and that causes a competition issue. Um, and then you've got other problems that go on. So you're trying to, to balance your harvesting there. Previously, those tertiary secondary species, they didn't have a market. So they stayed in that country. Many times they stayed on the ground. 
um, mm. which was really upsetting. Mm. Um, if they got used, it was building um, homes for the, the, the native populations. Now, because there's more restrictions and there's more people paying attention to, hey, we can't just keep using this particular species. We can't just keep pulling Pernambuco out of here because it's the national tree of Brazil and now it's Appendix 1 listed. So, but what else is being felled around it? Um, which there's, let me stick a pin in that particular hot butt issue because the Pernambuco <laughs> forests are now being managed to some extent as monoculture forests, which I do not agree with in the slightest. It's a whole other issue. The, the point being, we're now starting to, to learn about a lot of species that no one's ever heard of before mm. that grow right next to that species that everyone wants. Mm. And some instances, it's in the same genus. So back wow. to my point earlier, you're going to find a lot of similarities there. So let's talk about Pernambuco. Um, one of the things that you're going to find around Pernambuco is Masarinduba or bulletwood. And I know mm -hmm. bow makers that are using Masarinduba now and having Absolutely. some good results with it. Um, so what else, you know, nobody had heard of Masarinduba eight years ago, um, but it's been, it has been felled um, on a consistent basis for decades. It's not new. The tree's not new. Um, mm -hmm. There just was no market for it. The flooring industry started to grab onto it about five years, no, about eight years ago. Um, and then you started to see it showing up as a decking wood because it's similar to, to Ipe and Kumaru and Garapa and things like that. Um, but sure enough, when you look at the technical properties of Pernambuco and the technical properties of Masarinduba, you will find a lot of similarities. Um, the biggest issues with Masarinduba as a commercially produced species is it is so hard and so dense that when the tree itself is felled, it often... Um, develops cracks and fissures mm. when mm. it actually hits yeah. the ground. So as a decking wood that relies upon 18, 20 foot lengths, um, there's a real problem there. So mm -hmm. there is an opportunity for the folks that are using smaller pieces of it to say, because, because what's happened is decking and flooring said, we want Masser and Duba. And then like, well, now we can't get it because it's falling apart, you know, when the tree is felled. So, you know, they fell three logs, one of them cracks, that log just immediately becomes a defect mm -hmm. and it doesn't get used for anything. And they ship off the other logs to, to, to use as flooring. Well, now there's this log that has a crack in it that would work perfectly. In fact, it probably cracked along a natural fissure line right. or poor structure in the wood. And now you've got yeah. this, this yeah. perfect bending strength material, the ultimate riven grain along one side of it that could be utilized for this emerging market. So that to me is what gives me hope when we talk about, and I'll just yeah. lean into Pernambuco at this point because it's been all over the news recently. Yeah, please do. And, you know, you guys talked about it very recently on your show. I talked about it recently on my show. Mm -hmm. um, we could uncover this other species uh that that is currently available and currently being defected from what's drawing most of the attention flooring and decking and there could be this whole other industry that trickle down effect here now suddenly there's more, more wood available the sawmills are making more money on it and believe me these sawmills in these countries they do not make a lot of money they are scraping by and a lot of times you know, in an effort to um, 
to spread the wealth or uh, basically first world countries going in and trying to help out third world countries, they're giving more uh, ownership to the sawmills, to the felling operations in the forest that belongs to the native population that lives in the forest. Like they own that wood miser sawmill. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that wood is being felled and sawn into boards right there in the forest. Then it's loaded on trucks and taken taken to a port. So those um, those indigenous villages, those populations that are running that sawmill, they are cutting wood and they sell a log and they feed the village for a couple yeah. of weeks. You know, yeah, wow. and it's it's wow. that's that's their existence. You know, and in some ways, from a first world perspective, when we worry about like, oh my iPhone batteries at 36%, what will I do? You know, this is a much simpler life where it's just a matter of feeding their village. But at the same time, if they felled three Master and Duba logs and now they sold three of them, that is a massive boon. The entire yeah. village does well. So yeah. now we're helping like all the way down the supply chain there. Um, there's, there's more of those logs that are going out. We've uncovered a different market for it. We've uncovered a whole other species that can be utilized. And what else could Masaranduba be used for um, in smaller pieces besides violin bows? There could be a lot of other things. Um, Suriname snakewood is another one. Same exact story. Well, not the cracking side of things, but (laughs) because the tree itself is a smaller kind of runt, um, it never really developed a large commercial market because frankly, that's what the commercial markets are flooring and millwork. You know, long pieces, perfectly 100% clear type stuff. Um, and it just never really took off. The The snakewood market now is pool cues. That's mm. who's using it. Well, how many pool <laughs> cues are made in the world right now? I don't know. Maybe there's a whole lot that I don't know about. But that's, a, that's another species that um, is there wood that's currently going to waste because the market is not there. So I, I pose this challenge to your listeners right now. Not only do we want to find different materials for our tone woods, for the various you know bridges and fretboards and all that stuff, because we want to make better instruments, but by uncovering those additional species, you're unlocking other markets. You're yeah. unlocking opportunity from you know a guy who lives in a village in the middle of a forest in Papua New Guinea to you know that actual country creating a new export to a, a, a guy that's actually doing import to a business like like who i work for that's importing you know hundreds of well, not hundreds of millions but millions of board feet um, of exotic material to be sold to you know houses all across the country it it just goes all the way up that chain so it's a really exciting opportunity in that point and i'd be willing to bet you that the next big species in tone woods is not going to be something crazy. It's going to be something somebody's already felling, something that yeah. already has an existing supply chain around, but it's just been grabbed for another application and mm-hmm. no one's really thought about it because I'm making money selling this flooring. You know why? If it ain't broke, <laughs> don't fix it. So yeah. it's out there. Um, so the, the last point I'll make on that, the good news is they're not unknown. Mm-hmm. So the technical data is there. Um, the, the availability of the wood is there. <clears throat> you know, it's great if you can find this perfect wood. You know, you know, monkey puzzle is fantastic. It's the perfect combination of density, but, you know, it's also a massively protective tree and it's not really available. Although in Portland lately, I hear that Portland, Oregon <laughs> started planting it a lot. Um, that sounds right. It, yeah. 
Yeah, keep it weird. Exactly. You know, put a bird on it and put a monkey puzzle in there. So, but you know, that's a random example. I don't know why that tree popped into my head, but it's it's you know, it's an example of yeah, we know about it, but you're not ever going to find anybody to get it. Um, so yeah, it's to me, there's so many opportunities, and I continue to be excited, not discouraged, mm. by things like Appendix One listings um, because mm. all it does is finally force us to look somewhere else. Um, and I hear this from boat builders. I hear it from furniture makers right now, boat builders, you know, cause there's terrible stuff going on in Myanmar right now, which is where teak comes from. And they're like, well, I'm just going to keep buying teak until I can't get it anymore. And it's like, that's hmm. no, <laughs> stop <laughs> it. Like, that's not the right answer because there are other species out there. Are you aware of this species? And you start having conversations with them and they test it and they play with it and they go, holy crap, this works. Guess yeah. what? It's half the price of teak. Yeah. It's bigger and it's clearer and it's straighter and it's longer. And, you know, mother nature has been very kind to us. There's a lot of wood species out there. And the most sustainable way to manage our forests is to use more of those species. I'm not mm. necessarily saying more of the forest, please people stop writing the emails right now. <laughs> um, sustainable <laughs> management is finding a use for that forest, a, yeah. attaching a value to it. That is more than just, Ooh, it's pretty. I wish we could live in that world. I really, truly wish we could just sit here and go, that forest is pretty and therefore it has, it has value. But un unfortunately, there are people that are, that are living like to survive in those forests. Mm -hmm. And the best way to help them survive is to be able to pay them for that log. And the, the best way to manage that forest is for that person to go, ooh, if I take care of this tree, one day I'll be able to feed my entire village when I fell it. More importantly, mm -hmm. if I take care of that tree and the four feeder trees around it, there, my yeah. kids will be able to feed their village. Um, and that's, that's the important part um, that we have to continue to think about. And because of that, now we're unlocking all these other species. So my, my preaching over, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> no, that. That's wonderful. I think that's a great place to wrap it up yeah. for today. I think we'd already love to have you back because there's some some other things we want to get to. Sure. Uh, but well, let me say this. Here's a challenge to your listeners. Cause I, I would love to, we could talk, we could talk really technical on this, but I think we need to talk in context. It's harder to have a, a, yes. a more abstract conversation. So to your listeners, um, I would love to hear what your favorite species are for, you know, pick your application, bridge material, soundboards, bow material, and what other species have you used or what have you experimented with? Um, and what has been your experience or do you have questions about a specific species? Like I, you know, I'm using Pernambuco now. I play with Masser and Duba. What do you think about this species? Um, and, and if you can get some data point inputs on that, we can actually sit down and talk species to species. And I think that would be really nerdy, but a lot of fun. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, and there's even some there's some climate change stuff that I know some people have questions on as far as mm, yeah. you know spruce yeah. and maple, um, what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. So I guess we'll have to tease that for next time. <laughs> right, right. Anyway, Shannon, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, we highly recommend if you haven't checked out his podcast, uh, Shannon's Lumber Industry Update, please do so. We especially enjoyed episodes 68, 61, and 89 on CITES. Those were some of mm -hmm. uh, Team Omo's favorites. So You know you're a geek when you're, when you're watching CITES YouTube videos at like 11 <laughs> o'clock on Saturday oh. night. <laughs> for, for real. Or he's in the for roof real. in my house. <laughs> 
<laughs> thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you guys very much. Next time you're traveling through the Twin Cities, you'd be as dull as a used fingerboard plane to miss visiting House of Note. Located in St. Louis Park, you'll find the people of House of Note taking care of players at every level, from the beginner student to the Minnesota orchestra performer. House of Note has built their reputation over the years on being kind, fair, and honest. Pop in, and you're likely to find Jeff picking out hairs for a Bowery hair, while nearby Lyle is getting the symmetry perfect on a cello neck set. You might even find Aaron carving a stellar bridge for a new violin setup while Nick perfects the perfect fit of a soundpost patch. And Ty is putting the final polish on a new set of ebony pegs that fit just so. If you can't visit these guys in person, check out houseofnote.com, where you can view a wide selection of bows and showroom instruments or sign up for rental instruments online. House of Note. By musicians, for musicians. And this is Dakota. Dakota. We got Elizabeth Perry with us. Elizabeth, how you doing? I am doing great. I'm so excited. I uh, had the pleasure of listening to the interview you guys did. It was so cool. Yeah, Shannon's awesome. So what do you think from your experience with Tonewood? What, uh, what were your thoughts on it? You know, it's interesting it's it's really really cool to hear about tonewood from definitely from that like scientific perspective because i think too often we sort of rely on like mysticism <laughs> use the force yeah yeah exactly and i know that um i have you know i've felt kind of out of my depth choosing tonewood before and just felt like oh my goodness i don't know that one looks pretty sure <laughs> um but <laughs> Puppies and Tonewood. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's a cute one. I like that. I mentioned to a friend, though, I don't even know what kind of tone. I don't know what to buy or where to buy it. And we were at VSA, and he went, I love Tonewood. Can I help you? <laughs> and he became, like, my personal shopper for the day. Nice. And he was like, this is a good top. And he, like touched it and felt it and like scratch you know and I was like what are you and he's like it's like it's soapy or so you know and I was like I have no idea what he was talking about but I was like okay sure that it looks as good as the other one I don't know (laughs) (laughs) so um, yeah that's well one of my thoughts is get a personal shopper for tone with that'd be nice yeah Uh, (laughs) that sounds like a fun job for somebody I know, right? He was very excited because he didn't have any cash to spend that VSA. <laughs> Don't you think it's funny that, I mean, you, you've been around like I have a lot of mm-hmm. old instruments and you go to you go to the Tonewood dealers and the wood looks yeah. freaking gorgeous. Like yeah. flame like crazy, the tops, everything, like the spruce is super, super straight and just. And then you look at this old stuff. Yeah. And you're like, did you pull this out of like your wall? Yeah. Like, did you dismantle your yeah. bed yeah. to make this violin? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Were you that desperate? Sure, sure, Maybe. sure. Or did you dismantle the ship? You know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We, we're done sailing. Now we play. We're talking about Joseph Phileas right now. Which, which goes to show you that, you know, maybe the things that we're looking for, do they matter? Stuff that right. stuff that Shannon was talking yeah. about probably matters a whole lot more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the things that really hit me actually listening to Shannon 
I mostly tend towards violins. They're a little smaller violins and violas. Cellos are kind of, they're a lot to deal with. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> it's just they're really big uh, as far as like new making, right? Yeah. You know, um, and especially with violins, you're really kind of boxed in as far as wood choices because there's a there's a very very firm expectation from players mm-hmm. about what they're going to see mm-hmm. um and so we're kind of boxed in as far as like I, well we want to sell it yeah. <laughs> That's yeah the end goal um so as far as like you know a different type of wood for the back or you know, or sides or whatever that's you know i think a lot of makers might struggle with that idea but i actually started really wondering, well, could we look for a different type of wood for bridges? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because, you know, there's all this talk about bridges, you know, like there being a lack of really good bridge maple Uh and it's all in it, you know, and it's, I don't, do you guys feel this? Like they're just like getting softer and stupider and doesn't matter where you get it from. It's like, you have to be a little more picky. Some places it used to be great. Yeah. Not so great anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of people that just have old stock and they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do when I'm done with this really old stuff because, yeah, some of the new stuff. Oh, my goodness. I remember at a VSA watching um, Ryan McLaughlin and Shirley White picking through bridges. <laughs> and, and Ryan handed her a ring of bridges and said, here, I'm done with these. And she was like, I don't want your cast offs. <laughs> <laughs> It was like the most hilarious thing. That's so great. <laughs> it was it was really funny to just like walk by and see that and be like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I but going back to you know being kind of locked in a box as far as customer expectations, there's definitely that. But I also think it's maybe not as stringent as we think. I mean, I, mm. I had an instrument on my bench today, and I was like, oh, that's definitely sycamore on the back. That looks mm-hmm. very different. But lots of violins are made of sycamore. Uh, right. You know, people use pear wood and people use all kinds of different things already. And if it's carved well and, and finished well, really comes off nicely. Yeah. And that's really a critical part of it is if you know, if you if you have experience. And I remember there there was a, I've been catching up on old Omos and Jacoby was talking about, you know, knowing the wood and knowing how. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, knowing how it functions, and then you can get what you want out of it. Yeah, you know, and it, it, I think that matters a lot more right. than than it being from the perfect tree in the middle of Europe somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's the key right there. That's I think it that sums it up the most. The magic comes from the maker, right? Like, mm-hmm. and and that communication, and that's where the artistry comes from. That's why. That's why it can't be done just by a machine. Somebody has to get in there and go, all right, the last bit, how do we make this wood sound like we want? But that was like, you know, something that Shannon said, you know, where he was saying like, oh, they figured out the secret. Yeah, right. You know, and yeah. Jerry, that was, it, it kind of made me smile. You know, he said, oh, there's <laughs> always, you know, when people ask me, what is, what is the secret? Then I usually tell them, well, he was really old. By the time, by like, you know, by the time he got to his golden period, he'd been making violins for a really long time. And I think he probably had a really mm. good idea of what he was yeah. doing at mm. that point. And 
Probably, yeah. You, you, you would think, right? And yeah. he had a lot of experience and he was really old and he was really good at what he did. And I expect yeah. if, you know, if I had that many years in any industry, I'd be pretty darn good at what I did too. Like, Yeah. Well, so. you just tell him that, yes, you know the secret and no, you can't tell them, but you definitely <laughs> use the secret. So you should, they should buy it. <laughs> oh, oh man, I totally <laughs> missed out. <laughs> Omo is an all luthier podcast produced by Rosie Deloach, Brandon Gottman, Jason Peoples, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out at mail at omopod.com or call the Omophone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.